Welcome to the Hardwick Evangelical Church Weekly Podcast. When this series first, when we first said that we were going to be talking about this series, I am very confidently said to get, I'd love to talk about Mur. And then at 10 o'clock last night, I was thinking, why did I ever say to Kate that I would talk about? Anyway, <coughs> here we are. Um, we are two weeks away from hopefully, maybe hopefully, receiving some presents from family and friends. And depending on the relationship that you have with your families and friends, um, you might be either consciously or subconsciously playing the game of what do they mean when they buy me this gift? Copious amounts of perfume or aftershave might lead us to think they're trying to tell us something. (laughs) Indeed, anyone who receives running shoes or a gym membership for Christmas is probably only being told one very unsubtle message. Um, As we finish our series on the gifts of the the Magi today, we're up to our third and final gift. Um, So Dave Dave spoke on... Gold, Kate spoke on frankincense, and now we're on to myrrh. And as I was sort of prepping and planning for this, um, the reading and all the prep, it kept sort of twigging something (coughs) in the back of my mind, and I couldn't work out what it was. And at three o'clock on Friday morning, it came to the front of my mind. And perhaps bizarrely, what came to mind is Shakespeare's last will and testament. Now, I know who honestly wakes up in the middle of the night to think about Shakespeare's last will and testament. Well, I do. Um, And in his last will and testament, Shakespeare wrote this. He said, Item I give to my wife, my second best bed. (laughs) Now, throughout his entire life, there was very little reason to think why he would leave his wife his second best bed. But it left many at the time thinking that in his final publication he'd chosen that as the time to snub his wife. For what appeared to be a devoted husband, a second best bed as a gift for his wife is seemingly up there with the bizarre gifts that you would give. Right alongside wise men from the east bringing a burial spice to a newborn or infant child. But this morning I'd like to try and just debunk both of those theories a little bit and explore that Shakespeare really was a doting and loving husband and that more importantly the true significance of myrrh goes beyond what we traditionally understand it to be. So firstly let's deal with Shakespeare and we'll get that out of the way quickly. So what is the significance of William Shakespeare and Anne Hathaway's second best bed? Surely for a wife so loved and devoted to her as Shakespeare was the master bed would be the only suitable gift. However, due to the nature of hospitality and welcome that Shakespeare and his wife demonstrated, visitors to their house were regularly invited to stay, whereupon William and Anne would offer up the master suite, opting to share themselves the second best bed. The second best bed may have been a second best bed, but to William and Anne, It was the only personal and meaningful gift possible. And for years, writers and researchers 
into Shakespeare poured time and effort and energy trying to reread and interpret his works to try and find a line in a play or a poem or a sonnet that belied this apparent disdain that he had for his wife. But they reached a conclusion by only looking at one possible interpretation or meaning. And when it comes to the gifts from the Magi brought to the infant Jesus, I worry we may too be reaching conclusions by only examining one possible interpretation of what they are. Out of the eight commentaries that I read on the gifts of the Magi, I didn't read all of them, I read the very small section that was about the gifts of the Magi, um, but out of the eight commentaries that I read on the gifts of the Magi to Jesus, as documented in Matthew 2, six of them very heavily majored on the gift of myrrh being a foreshadowing of the death and suffering of Christ. This conclusion has been reached by focusing almost exclusively on the three instances that myrrh appears in the birth, life and ministry and death of Jesus. So we have Matthew 2, 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. Myrrh then appears later in the story of Jesus, but this time it's in Mark's Gospel. It said, they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And finally in John 19.39, we read of Joseph and he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. And it's these three instances that I can see that give rise to the perception of myrrh as just a, a burial spice brought to the infant child as a foreshadowing of his ultimate death and sacrifice. The carol that you all see on the sheet in front of you, We Three Kings, picks up this popular perception. It says, myrrh is mine, it's bitter perfume, breathes a life of gathering gloom, sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in a stone-cold tomb. But I think to base our entire understanding of myrrh on the three passages there is problematic. Firstly, I think it relies on us retrospectively applying meaning to something that otherwise would be completely unrelated. So when I was born, 34 years ago, nearly 35 years ago, and now I don't look a day over 40, um, <laughs> when I was born, I, as I was born closest to Christmas, I was given a fluffy polar bear toy by the staff on the ward. And I kept it for two or three years and then I lost it somewhere. Now as it happens, polar bears have not featured massively in my life at all. And I doubt they will appear much in my life in the future. However, had I gone on to study Arctic biology and presented frozen planet programs from an a hut in the Arctic, someone might look back on the events of my life and suggest that the gift of the polar bear that I received as a child was somehow relevant or foundational 
to my future life, or indeed a foreshadowing of what I was meant to do with my life. At the time, and in the moment, the two issues are completely unrelated. Only a retrospective application of meaning draws those two incidents together. And it isn't unreasonable, I'm not coming up with definite here, but it's not unreasonable to suggest that the same can be said for the gift of myrrh foreshadowing the death and suffering of Jesus. Secondly, it does deny some of the logic and the context of some of the passages. The Magi had no foreknowledge of who they were bringing the gifts to. Indeed, they first visited the palace, thinking that if a king would be born, then he would be born in the palace. Josephus was a, an ancient historian, and he wrote of Herod that he employed a secret police to monitor and clamp down on protest. He had a personal protection force of up to 2,000 soldiers, and he ruled Judea with a mixture of arrogance and cynicism. Now, he doesn't sound like the person that you would visit and gift a burial spice to. To say that Jesus receiving a burial spice as a child foreshadows his death and suffering when he himself was not the expected or intended recipient, for me, seems to lack a bit of credibility. So what are the alternatives? Well, there is one alternative, and that is that there is no wider meaning or purpose to myrrh, but rather it's a valuable gift given to Jesus and his parents. And myrrh was a very valuable gift. I preached on Nicodemus a while back and explored the idea that 75 pounds of myrrh provided Jesus with a burial fit for a king. It was not an invaluable commodity. Indeed, it was seen to be on a par with gold as a gift to be given. There was a, a trade in myrrh. Anyone who recalls the story of Joseph being sold off into slavery by his brothers, um, we'll read of the Ishmaelites who were going from Gilead to Egypt. And it, quote, it says that they had camels that were, quote, loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh. Now, Gilead to Egypt is about seven to 800 kilometers round trip. <coughs> It's not a trip to be made to sell trinkets and invaluable items. Indeed, Petra, the ancient southern North Jordanian city, one of the seven wonders of the world, was built on the back of the trade of myrrh. So one alternative was that myrrh was an expensive gift for a king, and that's all there is to it. And if you think that's all there is to it, I'll just stop there and we'll just... Um, However, I, I don't believe that to be the case. I think there's more to understand and more to appreciate the third gift that was given to Jesus. So where else might we read of and understand more about the gift of myrrh? Well, one of the earliest references to myrrh in the Bible is in Exodus 30. A few chapters earlier in Exodus 20, we read of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments. And what happens in the ten preceding chapters is that we hear a lot of we read a lot of stuff about um, explaining the role of the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle, the role of priest, and the necessity for sacrifice. But in Exodus 30, however, Moses receives from the Lord some very direct and specific instructions. And this is Exodus 30. It says, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much. That is 250 
and 250 of aromatic cane. The purpose being to create the anointing oil with which Moses would anoint Aaron, his brother, high priest of Israel. Anointing shows that the priest was set apart for holy service to God. The consecration of Aaron and his sons actually takes place a bit later in Leviticus. Leviticus 8, it says, Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and everything in it, and so consecrated them. He sprinkled some of the oil on the altar seven times, anointing the altar and all the utensils and the basin with its stand to consecrate them. He poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. That's Leviticus 8, 10 to 12, if you're interested. The purpose of anointing, consecration, is mentioned three times in this passage. To consecrate is to set aside, set apart, or to make holy. After their anointing, the priests were considered holy unto God. They were sanctified rather than common. If the gift of myrrh was a foreshadowing of Jesus' death and sacrifice, it could also quite plausibly, plausibly be a foreshadowing of his own anointing in Mark 14. Aside from the purpose of anointing, myrrh has perfume qualities with both positive and negative connotations. Proverbs speaks of an adulteress perfuming her bed with myrrh in an attempt to lure men to her. Yet in contrast to this, Song of Solomon speaks of intimacy within marriage that is laced with the sweet fragrance of myrrh and spices. However, it's the psalmist, slightly later, that writes of myrrh, Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. See here again the reference to anointing. The psalmist repeating the anointing of God, the setting apart, the quote, beyond your companions. In the opening verses, we, we read this psalm as addressed to a king. But throughout all of this, this is Psalm 45, throughout nothing in Psalm 45, in this psalm that is addressed to a king, do we read anything of the opulence and the grandeur or the appearance of what this king looks like? We don't hear anything of these robes of gold and white. What we hear instead is a reference to fragrance, the pleasantness and the welcome that it offers. So how do we square this circle? What is the significance of the Magi gifting a spice to Jesus that on one hand resembles the anointing of high priests? It resembles the welcome fragrance of a king's robes and the burial spice that would ultimately feature heavily in his death and his burial. Well, the significance, at least to me, is that in any other person, these apparent clashing ideas and connotations would prove too high a stumbling block, but not for Jesus. Because at the same time that he is the suffering saviour on the cross, he is also the fragrant king who welcomes us. He is also the eternal high priest, anointed and set apart 
for the work his father had for him. These apparent inconsistencies are met and overcome by the dependability and consistency of Jesus. Read Matthew 2.11 again. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold is a gift that is fit for a king. Frankincense is a gift that is fit for a king. Myrrh is the gift that is fit for the king. In the gift of myrrh, we acknowledge Jesus set apart, anointed and consecrated for the purpose the Father had for him. In the gift of myrrh, we also acknowledge the welcoming fragrance that draws souls to himself. And in the gift of myrrh, we acknowledge the sacrifice and death that means we can live in everlasting relationship with him. Now, it can be very easy to discuss these things and them to make sense up here or to go in here and out of here or whatever it is that you sort of choose to do with it. But it's interesting, how does that resonate here? Or perhaps more importantly, how does it resonate out there? What does this mean, other than it's been 15 minutes of your time where you found out an interesting fact about Shakespeare? Um, or maybe not so interesting. Um, and what I'm going to finish with is, I'm going to finish with a throw forward to, to Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. This is Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And Paul has explained in earlier verses the difficulties found in sharing the gospel in the places he's travelled. And he sums up by saying, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, and the other a fragrance from life to life. Paul's very clever here because he uses an analogy of a returning triumphant army parading through the city. It's a way to talk about evangelism and spreading of the gospel. These parades would have been common in the Roman world and they also would have been easily understood by the people reading at the time. And for us, the question is, as Christians who carry the aroma of Christ, how do we spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere? For more information about Hardwick Evangelical Church, please click the website link in our bio.